Hello, and welcome to the Development Debrief with Catherine Van Sickle, the stories-based podcast that interviews professionals, donors, and thought leaders in the field of fundraising. How do we handle crisis communications during COVID-19? We're learning as we go, and you are about to hear the alumni relations perspective from an expert, Michelle Vaith. Michelle shares mantras that help her during crisis, defines the difference between regular communication and crisis communication, and she reminds us to always do the right thing. She is dynamic and reassuring about the planning and strategy we can control for our external and internal outreach during COVID-19. In June of 2018, Michelle returned to her alma mater with a deep background in global marketing and communications, having spent 18 years in progressively responsible roles at Procter & Gamble. Her final assignment there was leading the brand communications, public relations, and crisis issues management for P&G's $5 billion healthcare division. She has actively leveraged her professional strategic planning and implementation skills in multiple volunteer roles, serving as president of the Cornell Club of Southwestern Ohio and a member of the Dyson Advisory Council. Michelle holds a Bachelor of Science degree from the College of Agriculture and Life Sciences from Cornell University. Hi. Hey, Catherine. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. I'm so excited to have you join us to share a new perspective on communicating and getting creative during COVID-19. And I thought we could start with talking about best practices all of us should keep in mind during this time as we communicate with our constituents. There's a lot of things that, you know, I do relate back to my corporate career. One of the number one things is you never know when your day is going to change on a dime because of a communication, an unexpected communication that might come in. At P&G, that could be a consumer. Um, And here at Cornell, it could be an alum. One of the things I've been thinking about is what happens when that dime switches and how communication is different in crisis. Is there a clear difference from your perspective? What are your thoughts on that? I would say yes. When you are in a crisis, you have to strip back your communications to be focused. You have to get clear on what the message is that you're trying to communicate, and you need to use plain human-to-human language. You need to strip back the acronym. We would call it puffery. Sort of all the stuff that surrounds Uh, storytelling sometimes. You are telling a story. Stories live in everything. But it is a very pared-back, laser-focused communication. Repetition is also helpful. Not everyone will hear or read what you say the same way. And you may be reaching them on a day where they are incredibly impacted by something very terrible and they won't remember. During that time of crisis, as you're using that very to the point, straightforward language, uh, relating human to human, it's okay if you feel like you're repeating yourself because you don't know who didn't hear you the day before or the week Mm -hmm. and who really needs to hear the message today. Do you think it's okay to follow up a couple days later? I think follow up is great. Communicating with people who are used to hearing from you is really important. 
because most people are in an insane time of crisis in unprecedented times like this. Typically, the human reaction is to want to grab onto something that's normal. And if all the normal things in your life are suddenly upended, even something very simple like hearing from a staff member at your alma mater, it can actually really brighten someone's day. And above all, in every communication during a time of crisis, you need to do that human check-in in the beginning until you have a better idea of what's going on in someone's life, if they're willing to share it. And, and so that first communication probably is not business as usual. And typically your donor or prospect or your volunteer will signal to you when they're ready to engage. You know, some of what we've seen at Cornell, folks are very, very transparent about what's happening. And they also, some people in the first response will go straight to the piece of business that's been on their mind in their reply. Yeah, I've seen that happen. Yeah. And they'll be like, oh gosh, the subcommittee meeting for this advisory board got canceled, but I've been playing around with this as I try to distract myself from what's going on in the world. And so you'll get a strong sense right away if someone has the capacity to engage um, on the business pieces or not. And we have to follow their lead. I'm really glad you brought that up because I have found myself both receiving and sending emails that say like, I hope all is well with you and yours, or I hope you're doing okay during this uncertain time. Now that we're in the third week, I've been starting to think, is that getting old? Is that just blasé? But it sounds like it's not. No, this is, an, this is another one that goes back into that best practice about repetition. And so reaching out every week, I think in a, most folks on the receiving end of that would view that as a sense of support and a sense of caring. Because that's what I've been doing. <laughs> well, you're doing great then. <laughs> Good. How do you personally stay calm when you're directing and planning and organizing crisis comms? The mantras that go through my head are all based upon that training that I had. You have to play your position and you have to be really clear on what your position is. Part of this is related to the notion that not everyone can be on the crisis team. There's usually a core team that is managing the crisis. Not every single person can be a part of the crisis team. And that's a good thing. You don't want hundreds of people in the crisis team. But for some folks, that's difficult to accept because that means Perhaps they're not as much in the know as they would want to be. But you need to say to yourself, when we're all in a crisis together, what is my position? In sort of almost a sports analogy. And if I'm a wide receiver, I'm not going to try to be a quarterback. But I can be the best darn wide receiver possible at this moment. And I'm going to let the quarterback, you know, run with it. I'm trusting that they're going to make the right decisions. So playing your position really, really matters. As I've seen different groups come together at Cornell, the other sort of mantras that I remind myself of is you will never have all the information you need or want to make the decision at the moment that it needs to be made. Time, That's a good one. Yeah, time matters in a crisis, but you make the decision 
based upon the best information you have available to you, to you at that time. The other mantra that comes to mind from my P&G days is you do the right thing, even when it's hard. And if you're doing the right thing, you rarely will go wrong, very rarely. Could you give us an example of the right thing? Because some, so many of us have different values, different belief systems. In my past, uh, gosh, I managed issues related to product contaminations, class action lawsuits, you know, ingredient defense and that sort of thing. For me, if you take a product contamination, no consumer good, goods company ever sets out to be selling contaminated goods. But sometimes human error happens and you have systems in place to catch that. But sometimes it's caught after the product has already left your factory. You always have to do the right thing to protect people's health and safety. And that always made it very, very easy for me when I was running point on not just the communications related to the crisis, but managing the crisis and managing the issue. You would always do the right thing. You would always very publicly recall the product. You would always, gosh, I remember one where we took out full page ads in about 40 countries <laughs> informing the general public that they needed to not consume this particular product. I've been impressed as the decision makers at Cornell, our president, her cabinet, my boss, Fred Van Sickle is on her cabinet too. As I've watched the decision making that they have done, they have been picking do the right thing even when it's hard every single time because at the end of the day they're prioritizing health and safety for students for staff for faculty and for the Ithaca community or any of our campus communities. I think now things are more clear that it's April and we've been through a couple weeks of social distancing but what was it like a couple weeks ago when you were trying to make decisions around reunion and commencement and how did you end up making that decision without all the information? Commencement was not my decision. So that's, that's not under my purview. Um, but the commencement decision was made by our president in the cabinet in the days leading up to our reunion decision. Um, we wanted to get clarity on commencement first because commencement for Cornell occurs at the end of, and at the end of May and reunion is a couple weeks later in June. So we couldn't go out with clarity on reunion before we knew what was going to happen on commencement. That's another thing that's important as an aside, you know, when you're managing through a crisis is sequencing the priorities and making sure that you are looking at who needs to know what, when. And just quick pause there. Have yeah. you literally written that out? I mean, are you someone who's visual who would write out what steps need to take? How do you make sure you don't forget anybody? There have been times when I've written it out. You don't always have that luxury though. In okay. this. Sometimes you have to make the decision or you can literally sit there and map it all out for yourself. I have developed the muscle that kind of helps me do it visually in my head. If, if I'm trying to bring a team along with me, it is helpful to get on a whiteboard and sketch it out. Okay. So sequencing is important. You had just gotten the news on commencement. Yep. So we had a, we had a decision on commencement and then the next big question was really reunion as many of us at Cornell have been doing as we've been making decisions, we look at the best information available. 
And if you listen to public health experts, they have been saying for weeks now that this is not, we'll live through a couple of weeks and then we go back to normal. And for me, that just made it an incredibly easy decision um, because I go back to what is the right thing and the right thing is to always prioritize health and safety. Now we really felt the weight of all of the hours our reunion volunteers had put into planning reunion. And we talked about that quite a bit. We also trusted that our reunion volunteers were going to trust us and that our relationships with them are strong and that we would be able to come on the other side of this with something that isn't what was going to be expected, but was going to be a meaningful gathering of Cornellians, even around the world, in a virtual sense. So that's what we are doing on Reunion Weekend now. We are having a virtual reunion, including all alumni, not just Reunion alumni, Reunion Year or Milestone Year alumni. We hope to have a gathering on campus later in the fall, queued with our homecoming weekend, which is, which is a big event on campus, but we, we need to be able to do that safely as well. How did you come up with the virtual idea? I love it. Well, it had been, it had been percolating for a little bit when the COVID-19 issue started to emerge out of parts of Asia. We had our uh, Cornell alumni uh, Asia Pacific leadership conference planned. It was actually going to be this week in Korea. And Fred and I were going to be there together with about probably 200 alumni from various different countries. And it's a wonderful conference. Back in January, we were seeing the signs of, of this health crisis that was starting to emerge in Asia. We said to ourselves, um, we need to make a decision soon because people were booking expensive plane tickets and changing their plans, et cetera. And we said, ultimately, I think it was the first week of February, we made the decision to cancel it. But we committed to doing some digital content, some virtual content for our Asia Pacific alumni so that we wouldn't miss a full year of engaging them. And so we started putting together a live stream event um, that was focused on the virus. We have several coronavirus type experts on faculty at Cornell, and uh, we worked very closely with our Vice Provost of International Affairs, Wendy Wolford, who helped us assemble a, a remarkable panel then a whole lot happened between early February and March. We said to ourselves, we need to offer this COVID-19 live stream panel um, up to all alumni, not just our Asia Pacific alumni. And we held our breath because we had never had a Zoom that big before. <laughs> our, our normal cap on Zoom was a thousand attendees and I don't believe we had ever come close to that before. And then we put out registration and within 30 minutes, we had already registered a thousand people. And we said, oh my gosh, we've got to go talk to CIT, which are our information technology campus. And we're like, how do we get that limit raised? And so we were scrambling. We were getting all these messages from alumni saying, it says it's full and I want to attend. And we're like, oh my gosh. 
So we scrambled and we were able to get it raised to 3,000, which we then promptly registered all the way through. So we added a replay of it with a live Q&A um, to occur later in the week. And I think that registered over 1,000 people. So we held our breath going into the, the, the first one and it worked really well. And the feedback was really, really positive from our alumni who were. And so was that last week? It was last week. Okay. And so as we were making our reunion decisions, we had a little bit of a test case on our hands of how is this going to go to do a much larger virtual engagement than all has ever attempted before. And, uh, and because it went well, we said we can stretch ourselves. And while it won't be the reunion experience that Cornell is known for and that our alumni have come to expect, it will be something powerful that brings Cornell alumni together around the world at a very unique moment in time. So exciting, Michelle. Yeah, we're excited about it. So um, we don't have all the details worked out. It is T minus nine or 10 weeks till reunion. Okay. Um, so we have brought together a handful of working groups to really start tackling this. And our goal is to, again, bring those Cornelians together and just rally some big red spirit and hopefully educate, inspire, and entertain folks along the way and help them to connect with each other at this moment when everyone is so isolated. Do you think it will be a multiple hour experience? Because one thing that's been interesting for us is that meetings in person, we're realizing are much longer than they are virtually. <laughs> yeah, it's funny what you learn, right? I've seen a lot yeah. of memes that have been really entertaining. Like there's a meme out there that said, now we're all learning that that, that meeting could have been an email. <laughs> yep. And like my, my parents have been attending virtual church and it's now 40 minutes instead of an hour. I know. My husband and I have been doing the same and uh, church is now 28 minutes. <laughs> really, it's amazing. But uh, to your question, in all seriousness, I don't, I don't mean to make light of the situation, but sometimes you do have to find those moments where you can let yourself laugh and raise those endorphins within your body and, and you get through the next hard stretch. But uh, to your question, we actually expect it will be a two-day event. It won't be 24 hours a day. We plan to offer programming over the course of the two days. And there will be some programming that is geared specifically towards the classes of the zeros and the fives who it's their reunion year. We're scrambling with those reunion um, volunteers to make sure we can tailor that in the right way so that they can still have their, their special, you know, moment. These are big these are big milestones. Yeah. But for the all alum programming, I, I do expect we will definitely have something larger on one of the days. I hope we can do it on both days. This is absolutely brilliant. People will set up their own little mini Zooms with their roommates and it really will bring people together the same way if you were to yeah. meet on campus and do your own little meetup, you'll just do it all virtually. That's what we hope. And again, we yeah. know Cornell's reunion is known for its tent parties and for Cornelliana nights. And um, we won't be able to recreate that the way that they're known to be 
but we sure are gonna try to to get make this a really wonderful experience well and one of my friends just got engaged last week and i was like i want to send them flowers and i couldn't for the life of me find a florist and i'm thinking what am i going to do and someone said to me you know it's really just about the thought it's about showing that you care and it's not going to be the same but all of the cornelians are going to know and so appreciate the effort that you've put forward to pivot Mm -hmm. very true how are you communicating with the alumni from your from your position of <laughs> running alumni relations know your position so we we have mapped out sort of a communication conversation type calendar we're working to also supplement that with virtual content too which i can say more about but so we have a regular cadence of communication planned our, our president is already doing these incredible communications to the cornell community um, she just did an all alumni communication special for alumni last weekend i followed that up with a message to the classes of the zeros and the fives okay that they would hear from my office directly about how sorry we are that these changes have had to happen. We're all in this together. And it really, it comes back to some of those principles that I was talking about before. Communicate frequently. Don't overwhelm someone all within one day or within a couple of days. You know, you do have to take a look at the whole ecosystem, even if it's just from your institution. Cornell is very de decentralized into colleges and units, and each of them have communications teams that communicate with alumni. So we need, we try to get our arms wrapped around that so that we're not overwhelming folks or being too repetitive of the same piece of information. In general, keep up that cadence of communication, keep the lines of communication open. And the other thing is, don't forget about your internal constituents. Communicating with our alumni and with our donors is really important. But what's so unusual about this crisis is now our staff, our teams, are totally isolated from each other. There is no getting together in a war room to manage the crisis together physically, which is typically a best practice of how you manage a crisis. So you have to almost over-communicate with your internal teams so that the teams have the information that they need to be able to respond to the communications they may get from their cohorts or constituents. Right. And also just to try to keep morale up at the end of the day. What, what I've been working with Fred on was, it was probably two weeks ago that he and I mapped out, this is what the internal staff communications for our division, for Cornell Alumni Affairs and Development, which all rolls off under Fred. We had an internal comms plan before that, but these are such unprecedented circumstances, we needed to do things more frequently. So now our division is hearing from Fred three times a week. Monday, Wednesday, Friday, you know, in this remote situation, that's the right thing to do, um, especially for staff who might feel as isolated as some of our alumni do right now. Mm -hmm. Well, that's great. I'm glad you've been able to accommodate that and make it happen. Yeah. I'm in the house with two other people and I still feel really isolated. It does sound like the three days a week communication is working. We're actively seeking feedback from our staff all the time though. Just How are you doing that? 
we're doing it through the internal communications. I went back to at the very beginning of this with my own staff and my own leadership team that reports into me directly. I immediately implemented another crisis management best practice, which is you do daily huddles with your team. And the daily huddle is typically 30 minutes and that's on purpose because it makes you really focus on exactly what are the hot items of the day and who's going to do what that day. And that was really important a few weeks ago, especially when we had gotten the words that we needed to shut down all of our events around the world. And that's a lot of work to shut down a lot of events and it's a lot of stakeholders and it's a lot of matrixed staff relationships that we wanted to make sure we weren't tripping over one another. So those daily huddles with your, your you know, leadership team or your working team are really, really important. Fred actually instituted daily huddles of his leadership team shortly after that. And, uh, and we're still doing them. We're, we're doing day, I'm doing a half hour daily huddle with my team and Fred's doing uh, about an hour daily huddle with his leadership team. Eventually, we hope to be able to get out of sort of the crisis mode, but given we're all working remotely, we'll probably keep a regular cadence of, you know, quick half hour huddles. Maybe it's a Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or a Tuesday, Thursday to make sure that folks are connected, they're hearing the same information and able to ask questions that then I can go if I don't have the answers and there's lots of times that I don't have the answers then I can go and figure out answers before the daily huddle the next day so that we can keep work moving that needs to move you know a couple of weeks ago that work was all crisis related now we're taking a look at the reprioritize project list and saying okay how do we get these things back on track in the right way i'm so glad you explained that because i do think that now that we are in the third week people are starting to experience zoom fatigue and just a lot of screen work but Actually, my team has been doing daily huddles from the beginning, and for those who are listening, you can learn more about that in my episode with Veronica Martini. It is important, even though it might sound like a slog, it really is important to connect every day, and Michelle, you just beautifully explained why. Because you can move things forward at a faster rate than you would be able to if several days go by in between. So that's great. There's a couple other mantras that have come into my mind from my training Oh, please share with us. Throughout, throughout these past few weeks, and especially in some of those really tough moments when you're making those decisions and you don't have all the information that you want. Yeah. And this goes back to the, the role that I played more at P&G. It's not officially a part of my role here at Cornell. But we're all part of teams and we all bring our training and our strengths hopefully with us to every team that we're a part of. One of them is to really be wary of group think because when you don't have all the information, you're having to lean in and make fast decisions. Sometimes it's just easiest for a group, no matter how senior they are, but you have to look for the signs of group think happening on a team and if you are one of the issue in crisis managers or if you have an affinity to doing that type of work or playing that role on your team, you need to call it out. And you need to make sure that true opinions and perspectives are getting on the table rapidly so that you can have as much information and perspective as possible in very quickly 
rather than folks sitting on an opinion that they think might not be the right one. It's okay if it's, if it's not the final decision, but vocalize your opinion and, and watch out for that group thing. The other thing is, this is part of what I have leaned on to these past few weeks. You have to be very comfortable being unpopular. You have to be very, very comfortable. Ooh, that's a good one. Being the un or holding the unpopular opinion in the room. Mm. Often the unpopular opinion gets you to the answer of what is the right thing to do, even when it's hard. I've had those two things, you know, in the, in addition to some of the other things that I shared that have come up often. I had some really good training back in DG. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for sharing all of that. Thing is just breathe. <laughs> when you find yourself in these moments, I remember one, oh, I have too many war stories, but I remember one crisis that I was running point on. And I was in the crisis meeting, like the daily huddle crisis meeting. This was one where we had three times a day daily huddles because that's how fast it was moving. Wow. And um, I got pulled out of the crisis meeting because something even more critical had happened within the crisis. And it involved someone who had died. This was back in 2011. And I remember I walked in the room because I couldn't imagine why I was being pulled out of this critical crisis meeting. The phone was already open to the person that needed to relay this information to me. And I shut the door. And he relayed the information. And I remember just sitting down and putting my forehead on the table for a moment. Like literally you needed to allow, I needed to allow my body to just do that for a second. And then I reminded myself to just breathe. <laughs> Took that breath and then went right back in. Because there's so many people when you are playing that role there, you are playing your position, and there's so many people relying on that. So if you find yourself and you feel like your body or your brain is getting overwhelmed by it all, sit, put your forehead on the table, <laughs> then pick your head back up and just breathe. And just listen to that breath and feel that breath. It can wait 30 seconds for you to do that. Oh, Michelle, thank you for sharing all of this. I'd love to end with, what do you know for sure? Oh gosh, I think I've, I've probably said it a few times. It's always the right thing to do the right thing. I know that for sure. A corollary within crisis <laughs> is never waste a crisis. No matter how terrible a crisis is, you will often find some nugget to grab onto. It's a stretch to call it a silver lining, but it's something. And it's an opportunity often that allows you to do things differently in the future. Learning and growth. Learning and growth. Do the right thing and never waste your crisis. Thank you so much. Thank you. This was fun. <laughs>